kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before them. This is God's word. This is Jesus speaking and continuing to speak to us. 1.5 metres. I don't know what you're going to do. Thank you. There's something wrong with the slides and he's going to have to operate them for me. Give Josh a clap for me. What a servant. So I have already prayed that the Lord would direct us in looking at this passage and so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to jump right in. Let me say a couple of things as he gets the slides up. We're up to slide one, Sermon on the Mount, not that one, the next one, Introductions. Here we go. Just a couple of quick things by way of introduction. I mean, scholars have written tomes about this, volumes and volumes and volumes. Um, But I just wanted to outline some of this. The Sermon on the Mount is not a sermon which has been presented by Jesus in order for people to get into heaven. It's not the standard setting saying, if you do this, you'll be good enough to get into heaven. That's not what it's about. Though many people in Australia particularly think that. Don't know if you've spoken to some of your non-Christian friends or whatever, but if you ask them, how do you get to heaven? Some of them at least will say, by quoting something out of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I'll follow the golden rule. I'll do unto others as I would have them do unto me. And if I do that, then God will accept me. That's incorrect. It's not true. And so the Sermon on the Mount is not a standard that is given. Rather, it is something that is given to the disciples as goals for the way that we are to live, the way that we are to behave as we follow Jesus. It's written for disciples, for believers. Um, And we are to strive to live this way. So it's a challenge for us as followers. Um, Where was it? Well, the passage tells us that it was on a a mountain. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. Can you think of any other significant place in Scripture where somebody went up on a mountain and God's law was declared or God's law was given? Moses, Exodus, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, No, not Sermon on the Mount, Ten Commandments. And so it's like Jesus is reenacting, just as significant as the Ten Commandments were and God's law was given from Mount Sinai. So this is the amplification of that law for believers now. So it's on a mountainside and Jesus sat down. That's not just simply a statement like you're sitting down now, but it's rather significant. The Jewish rabbis in those days, they would teach their disciples as they walked around, as they were in the marketplace, as they were doing lots of things. But when they wanted to say or teach something with authority... They would sit down. And so whatever they said or taught when they were seated, that had authority. Just like you could, if you understand, um, in the Catholic Church, the Pope, when he speaks ex cathedra, when he speaks on the throne, it has authority through the Catholic Church. It's a similar sort of idea. Um, In our world, in our culture, it's very different. 
In our members' meetings, for instance, the chairman of the meeting, when he stands up, it's the reverse. When he stands up, it is an authoritative statement. Same in Parliament. When the speaker stands, everybody else is silent. Because when the chairman stands, when the speaker of the house stands, he is in control. And it's silence. And nobody can say anything or should be saying anything because he is standing. And he is about to give a ruling or he's about to give a direction. So it's the reverse for our world. But So this is an authoritative teaching. It's a position that Jesus sat down. Um, and who is it to? This is important to note that Jesus spoke this to his disciples who came to him. And then he began to teach them. They weren't the only ones there. But it's his disciples, the 12 and maybe the 70 or however many were at that point in his ministry. And there were other disciples like inverted commas disciples who were on the edge, the periphery, who were thinking about being disciples or not. And some of them would eventually fall away. And there were other people who weren't disciples, the crowd. So there were these sorts of three rings of people. There were the disciples, the periphery disciples on the edge, and then there was the crowd listening in. And certainly when Jesus gets to the end of the message, he's talking primarily to his disciples, but by the end, he's addressing the crowd. Because he talks about um, the narrow way and the broad way. And he talks about uh, the wise builder and the foolish builder, building your your, your life on rock not on sand and so on he challenges people it's not just about what you say it's about you being in submission and doing the father's will they're the ones who get into heaven so there are three groups present but the sermon on the mount is delivered given primarily as i said to his disciples and then if you read it through there is a pattern to it and people come up with different observations about the pattern but all of them begin with the word blessed some new English translations use the word happy. Happy is the person. That's a bad translation. Jesus is not talking about being happy. Happy for us is an emotional state. Happiness is about us responding to whatever circumstances we are in. It's what's happening, whether we are happy or not. He's not talking about that. Jesus uses the word blessed, which has a specific meaning, which means you have the approval of God. So blessed, approved by God, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is talking about the qualities of those whom God accepts, the qualities that God is looking for in the life of the disciple. So it's a pretty high standard and it's challenging and that's all the way through this sermon, the New Testament. Jesus was certainly bothered by people who were self-righteous people who thought that they were good enough or right enough by their ceremonies or religious rituals or whatever else. They knew the rules, they knew the commandments, they thought they kept them and so on. They thought they measured up. That used to bother Jesus because he knew they didn't. And so he sometimes will target them specifically. There are other Beatitudes in the New Testament, other blessed statements. We don't have time tonight to get into that. So let's work our way through it. I'm not sure how quickly I'll go um, because I have a lot of material and probably far too much material and I have to finish this. Um, Our services can only go for one hour, so I have to finish this pretty quickly. So let's just close in prayer. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They're going to heaven. 
they're going to be in the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about blessed are the poor financially. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the spiritual beggars. Blessed are the people who know that they don't measure up. Blessed are the people who are aware that they are spiritually bankrupt. It's the opposite of someone who is proud and self-righteous. Remember the story Jesus told about a tax collector and a Pharisee who went up to the temple to pray? We did it in morning church a couple of Sundays ago. Maybe last Sunday, I can't remember. And the Pharisee is one who's very proud and very self-righteous. But the tax collector, a broken, humbled sinner, aware of his own fallenness, his own sin, says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, they're the ones that Jesus is talking about. Blessed are the people who are like that. Blessed are the people who become aware that they don't measure up. They know so. And that actually drives them to God to ask for forgiveness. They're the ones who find God accepting them. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. But if you don't think you need God, that you don't need um, his forgiveness, you think you're good enough to measure up, well, then you won't come to him. And so the blessing is not for you. And the reality is we're all broken, we're all flawed, we're all imperfect. Not sure I have time to do all of these distractions, but there was a time... I've been following Jesus for... Since 1973, how long is that? 27, 47 years. I've been following Jesus longer than most of you have been alive. And believe it or not, I'm still not perfect. I know you don't agree, but... It sometimes catches me by surprise about how sinful I still am. This is a story which is going back a long time now, 10 years, no, longer than that. But it's a story that I remembered when I was preparing this, that there was a guy, if you've been coming to this church for long enough, you'll know that I've gotten better, but I do get irritated by stupid drivers. On this one particular occasion, so this is over, this is like 19, 20 years ago, back there. I was in Sydney and this one guy was an older guy and he just kept doing exactly the wrong thing. When I wanted to cross lanes, swap lanes to pass him, he would swap lanes in front of me. He did that two or three times. Could you imagine how a righteous follower of Jesus would respond to that? Well, I did. I got really angry. And so then I'm swapping and I'm trying to get past him and the lights went red in front of me. And so I stopped behind him. Then I got out of the car. I've already gone too far, haven't I? <laughs> and as I'm walking up to him and I'm going to knock on his window, it suddenly occurred to me, what am I going to do? I was so cranky with him. He was doing the wrong thing. So I knocked on his window and I said to him, you're a bad boy. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to punch him. That's what I felt like. And then as I got back in my car, I just thought, everybody else in the car around me who was stopped are watching me. And they didn't know that I was a Baptist pastor. They didn't know I was a follower of Jesus, I hope. But it just shows you that we are all poor in spirit. The question is, will we acknowledge it or not? That's the point that Jesus is making. Let's move on. I'm not telling any more personal stories. It's too embarrassing. 
Jesus then goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And what he means is those who mourn about their sin, those who mourn about their state before God. That They're not just upset about it, they actually grieve over it. Um, and because of that grief, feeling bad about it, they actually go to God and ask for forgiveness. They don't just worry about their sin, they're not just miserable about it, they don't just beat themselves up about it. All of that happens, but they do something about it. They go to God and they say, God, I have done the wrong thing, please forgive me. Well, Jesus promises that for people who do that, they will be comforted. Uh, that God, they'll experience God's forgiveness and God's cleansing. They'll find that God accepts them. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed, approved by God, are those who mourn for their sin. I came across this and I thought, this is superb. There is a song that I can't quite remember, but I'll mention it to you. <clears throat> Here is the quote. God doesn't love me because I'm good. God loves me because I'm precious, and I am precious because Jesus Christ died for me. That's good, isn't it? God doesn't love me because I'm good. He loves me because I'm precious to him, because Jesus Christ died for me. You should repeat that to yourself. God doesn't love you because you're good. He doesn't love you because you're religious. He loves you because you're precious to him, and Jesus died for you. And there was a song we used to sing about that. Um, I can't do anything to make him love me more and nothing I do will make him close the door. Does that ring a bell? That's the truth of it. So the second one is, I've come face to face with my sin and I mourn over it. It grieves me. It's wrong. And I say so. And Jesus says, blessed are those people. Number three, blessed are the meek, not the geeks, the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Keep my eye on the time. Um, in this world, meekness is weakness. It's, in this world, you have to assert yourself. It's the confident and the arrogant who will take over the earth. The meek might very well get to heaven, but it's the mean and the aggressive who get the earth. The mafia, the dictators, the multinationals or whatever. This world says, take charge. Nice guys finish last. Jesus says, the meek will inherit the earth. God approves the people who are meek. What's meekness? Well, it's not, as it often is in English, it's not deficiency in courage. It's not being meek and mild and soft and tame. That's what it might mean in English, but that's not what Jesus means. That's not the word that he uses. He uses a very specific word, which is talking about somebody who has strength and abilities, but it's under control. It's like the rider on a horse. This is the most common illustration given for this word meaning. It's the rider on the horse who has control of the horse. A horse is 500 pounds. It's significantly stronger and heavier, but it's under control, under the control of the rider. So that's meekness. That's the word. Sometimes in the New Testament translated as gentleness. It's strength under control. <clears throat> Moses was, in the authorised version, the meekest man on the earth. Jesus is called meek in Matthew 11. He's talking about gentleness of heart. It's a person who acknowledges, regardless of their abilities, that God is in control. I'm not. God is in control. He knows me and he knows exactly what I am like. And I submit to him. I trust him. That's what the blessing is for. Blessed are those who understand that. I'm aware of my acceptance and approval with God and therefore I am meek or 
gentle, controlled in my response to others. I don't need to assert myself to have my way. God is in control and he's going to work his purposes out. Number four. Blessed are the hungry who blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. Again, blessed these are the people who are approved by God, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst is a basic human drive. We hunger not just for food and for drink, but we also hunger for, like in a sporting game, you know, you've got to be hungry to win, to be competitive. It's that drive within us to be successful. That's certainly what the advertisers tap into. Well, Jesus has a different diet. He says, blessed are those who have a very deep, heartfelt desire to be righteous, holy, to be in the right with God and doing right with other people. <laughs> Mark Twain says this, having spent considerable time with good people, I can understand why Jesus liked to be with tax collectors and sinners. Having spent, this is Mark Twain, having spent considerable time with good people, I can understand why Jesus liked to be with tax collectors and sinners because they're more honest. They're more vulnerable. They're more unpretentious. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be different, to be righteous. And Jesus promises they will be filled. None of us are righteous, not by ourselves. None of us are good enough. Some people are certainly self-righteous. But Jesus is talking about people who have a desire to want to be better than what they are, to be right with God and doing the right thing with other people. We admire it when we see it in other people. And Jesus is saying, if you have that desire within you, to hunger and thirst for it, it's a sign that God is at work in you. If you don't have that desire for righteousness, that's a red light, that's an alarm going off, that's a, something's not right in your spiritual life. And the wonderful promise is that God will fill us. As much as we desire it, he will continue to fill us. Not a one-off meal, but it's an ongoing process. Do you have that sense? Do you have that need? Do you have that awareness of, I want to be more righteous? I'm not going to tell you what it was, but in the last couple of weeks, there was some particular part of my behaviour and some particular part of my attitude and thinking processes where I suddenly went, whoa, this is really bad. This is wrong. And I was so devastated by it and humbled by it, I just came to God and asked God, please forgive me and change me. And ever since then, particularly on, high on my agenda, is I need to be righteous. I need to do that which is right in God's sight and for God's people. It's so easy to slip over the line, so easy to do the wrong thing and to get caught in it. And here I was heading in that direction and I suddenly went, put the brakes on and I went, oh my goodness, I need to stop. I need to be right. Do you have that sense? And if you do, well, that's excellent. Jesus is saying, blessed are the people who have a desire to be better, to be righteous than what they already are. There's a movie that I love with Jack Nicholson. I love him as an actor. He's naughty, but I like him. There's a movie, I think it's called As Good As You Get. And in it, he falls in love with another one of the stars, Helen Hunt. And he's a guy with a lot of social problems and mental issues and everything else. And he's, in fact, he's attracted to her romantically. And 
he's always critical and negative, very sharp. And she, once, I think at a dinner, says to him, tell me something positive about me. And he blurts out, you have to think about it for a while. He blurts out and says, blurts out and says, you make me want to be a better man. And she goes like, that's the best you can do. But what he's really saying is, I am dependent on drugs and medication to help me stay sane and sensible. But when I see you, I want to be a better man. You, you know, impact me to want to be better. It's a great line out of the movie. Um, And that's what Jesus is saying, that blessed are the people who have that sort of desire, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Promises, God says, I'll fulfill it. I'll satisfy it for you. Let's move on. Number five. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Again, in the ancient world, mercy was seen as a weakness. Mercy is not grace, but it's right next door to it. Grace is God's response, his unmerited favour to people who are sinners. That's grace, unmerited favour, nothing we could do to win it. God's mercy is his response to our misery. Slight difference, but obviously connected and related. And Jesus is saying, blessed are people who are like that, who are merciful to other people, who empathize with other people who are hurting. You enter their perspective and you do something to assist them. It's not us doing things to other people so that they'll do it to us. It's not that. It's not us doing things to other people as we would want God to do to us. Not that. If you get it, mercy is... Me behaving towards other people because of what God has already done to me. What he's done for me. He was merciful to me, therefore I am to be merciful to others. That's a challenge. That's Jesus' standard. That's what he wants us to do. Blessed are the merciful. Because they will be shown mercy. Hastening on. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. Who's pure in heart? They will see God. This is a, blessed are the pure in heart, not they'll see God when they get to heaven. No, no, no. Blessed are the pure in heart, you'll see God in the here and now. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the people whose hearts have been cleansed because of their sin, who have mourned over it, who have humbled themselves, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful to other people, and they are unmixed in their motives, in their heart. They're genuine, they're real. China's been having some disputes with Australia and, you know, they're now declaring our grain and stuff to be impure. It's mixed with stuff. It's not pure wheat or pure barley or pure whatever. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's pure. It's unmixed in its motives. It's single-minded. It's, I want to please God. I want to do the right thing. It's who I really am on the inside and then it's me seeing what God does in people's lives around me. It's pure in the heart. See, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, the eye sees what other people are doing. Out of the heart, the mind thinks and understands. The heart is the centre of us, the real us on the inside. Blessed are those who are pure there, who are unmixed, genuine, true, fair income. They will see God. You will see God 
at work in people's lives. You'll become aware that God is doing things in your life and in other people's. Live looking up and you'll experience this insight and this cleansing deep in your own heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. You'll see God at work. Number seven, nearly there. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed, approved by God, are the people who work for peace. They'll be called the children of God. These peacemakers are those people who are actively working for peace, for reconciliation. It's working for peace between God and people. That's the gospel, sharing the gospel with people that they can be forgiven and made right. Blessed are those who are um, at peace within. And then blessed are those who are at peace in relationships, who work for that in terms of reconciliation, relational peace. Peacemaking is what God's about. That's what he does. Reconciles people to himself. That's what he wants us to do. If we follow Jesus, that's what he did. Therefore, that's what we'll be doing. Making an instrument of your peace, said Francis of Assisi. And then number eight, and it goes together, 10, 11, and 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted. How could that be fun? How could that be blessed? Well, you have God's approval if you're persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely slay all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad because your great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are you if you find that you rub up against the world and other people and they are hostile towards you, they react to you, they say evil or they attack you in some way. Why is that a blessing? Well, because it's obvious to others that you're following Jesus, that you're following God. And you should rejoice in that, that it's true and it's real and it's genuine in your life. You should rejoice because you're in very great company, so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. And you should rejoice because God takes note and great is your reward in heaven. To stand true for what God is doing in your life will make you unpopular in this world. We don't experience a lot of that in our country, but we do experience it at some level. 2 Timothy 3.12 certainly says, anyone who wants to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. It's guaranteed. Why? Because the world is different. Their values are different. Their standards are different. To them, you become obnoxious. You become an irritation. You convict them in their own conscience. All sorts of reactions happen. It bothers them that you're doing the right thing. They want you to do the wrong thing, then they feel comfortable. That's what Jesus is talking about. Blessed are those approved by God who are persecuted for his sake. So let me summarize all of this. Here is the response. Jesus says, There is nothing in me to commend me to God, poor in spirit. If I acknowledge my poverty to him, he accepts me. Number two, I've come face to face with my sin and I mourn over it. It grieves me. It's wrong and I say so. Number three, I am aware of God's acceptance and approval and therefore I am gentle and controlled with others. I don't need to assert myself or push myself against others if I'm following Jesus. Number four, I have a deep and a growing desire to be right within, to be righteous 
and to act the way that I wanted to, but also as I should for God's approval. Um, I have received God's mercy and therefore I show it to others. Pure in heart, I now live to please him. I see God at work in people's lives around me and at work in my life, changing me, changing them. Peacemakers, like Jesus, I want people to be at peace with God, have the peace of God within and also to have peace in relationships. And then number eight and finally, blessed are those who are persecuted. I'm going to be different to the world and therefore I'm going to experience their hostility, their opposition, their indifference, whatever. Yet I can rejoice because it's obvious that I'm following Jesus, I'm in good company and I have a great reward. That's Jesus' standard for his disciples. That's what he calls us to and desires us to demonstrate in our life. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, these words are pretty familiar to us and so we ask that you might, by your spirit, continue to enlighten us, convict us, changes. Lord, we are poor in spirit. We mourn over our sin. We come to you for mercy. Transform us by your spirit, by your grace. Make us righteous and pure in heart and merciful to people. And help us, Lord, to cooperate with you in your work of what's going on in the world. And we pray this not for our glory and sake, but for you, that you might be evident and that you might be pleased and that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.